Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Mazmi from Princeton University. Today, I'm here to talk to Dr. Stephen Searles, the author of The Impoverishment of the African Red Sea Littoral from 1640 to 1945, published by Algrave Macmillan in 2018. Dr. Stephen Sells is a research fellow at the Leibniz Zentrum Modernaire Orient. He holds a PhD in history from McGill University. He previously was a fellow at Harvard University Center for Madrasian Studies and Martin Luther University Halle-Wittenberg Center for Interdisciplinary Regional Studies. He's the author of Starvation and the State, Famine, Slavery, and Power in Sudan from 1883 to 1956, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2013. And the book that we are going to talk about today, The Impoverishment of the African Red Sea Lateral from 1640 to 1945, is his latest publication uh, as a monograph. We will explore the African Red Sea Lateral. It is currently divided between Sudan, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Djibouti, and often in the news as uh, the the book covers, back cover says, as in these days, as one of the poorest regions in the world. But the pastoralist communities indigenous to this region were not always poor, historically. They had access to a variety of resources that allowed them to prosper in the harsh, arid environment. This access was mediated by a robust moral economy of pastoralism, that acted as a social safety net. Stephen Searles charts the erosion of this moral economy, a slow-moving process that began during the Little Ice Age mega drought of the 17th and 18th centuries and continued throughout the devastating famines of the 20th century. By examining mass sedentarization after the Second World War as merely that the latest manifestation of an intergenerational environmental and economic crisis, this book offers an innovative lens for understanding poverty in northeastern Africa within the Indian Ocean world. Welcome, Stephen, to New Books of the Indian Ocean World. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here today. We are glad to have you. Uh, We start by learning about the author. Uh, So can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself uh, where you grew up, how, where you went to school, how you became interested in the Red Sea and the African uh, uh, literal of the Red Sea, and if you had any influential mentors you would like to mention. Sure. Um, I was born in New York, and I have a kind of very roundabout course towards studying this part of the world. Um, 
Before studying history, I went to university to study chemical engineering. And um, then I went to university to study fine arts and then history. And when I started my master's in history, I was interested in the history of cities, uh, something that developed while I was a, a art student. Um, it's interested in the history of cities, urban culture, the built urban environment. And this led to my master's thesis, which is about the building of the city of Khartoum, which was planned from nothing by the British in the first decade of the 20th century uh, as a model um, healthy city for white people to live in Africa, which I found very interesting. The guy who designed the city also went on to design the first modern plan for Jerusalem and also the redesign of Alexandria in the 1920s. And, um, and that got me interested in, in Sudan and the history of Sudan. And my PhD work was, uh, began in, as a kind of broader contextualization of that project and then led to really examining um, the history of famine in, the, in, in Sudan. And as I was writing my dissertation, which became my first book, I really came to understand famine as a kind of, as a special case of poverty, that it really is a kind of poverty, an extreme example of it. Um, and that led me to think about poverty as a kind of broader topic. And often we don't talk specifically about poverty or impoverishment enough um, as historians. It's, it's somehow we, we talk around the edges of poverty. And I try to work on something that looked directly at poverty, at poverty, both as a kind of process, a historical process, um, and also that has um, real material consequences for the people who end up living in poverty. Um, and in part, Methodologically, my work is really, I'm an economic historian that grounds my work very strongly in environmental history. And in this, I owe a debt of gratitude to uh, Dr. Gwyn Campbell, who's the head of the Indian Ocean World Center at McGill University, who's my PhD supervisor. And he was, he was really the, perhaps the most influential person in terms of my own research. I um, began working with him as a master's student shortly after coming to history from fine arts. And it was through conversations with him and understanding the work that's going on at the Indian Ocean World Center that I really understood how to look at the impact of changes in the natural environment on human uh, civilization. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I would like to mention the book idea developed if you can talk about the research process and the writing experience. Sure. Um, so the, the part of the idea for the book and part of what was going on in terms of, in terms of um, my early research on the book is uh, I was interested in trying to write a history of people that are not completely captured in the, in the archival record. Uh, pastoralists have a tendency to um, move away from, gov from governments, especially colonial governments who are trying to pin them down, who are trying to collect taxes from them, to force them into senatorization, to appropriate resources from them. They have um, a kind of a reason to be suspicious. And the end result is that the historical archival record doesn't capture them um, completely. In my, PhD, in my PhD, which became my first book, I looked partially at um, Eastern Sudan, because that is one of the places where the um, British colonial administration began before the conquest of Sudan in the 1890s. They ruled Eastern Sudan from 1885, parts of it. Um, and, and I understood that there were, there were things that were not being captured in the, in the record because the people were moving away from British territory into Italian territory, coming from Italian territory into British territory. And so then I began um, the project as one of looking across archival records to figure out what's going on on the other side of the border. So I began by looking at um, Italian records to try to figure out what's going on in Eastern Sudan. And that led to really uh, understanding that there's patterns that are happening 
across different um, pastoral groups that are di becoming divided between different colonial territories, and um, that these patterns can actually fill in the gaps from the documentary record that is in, often very scarce. Um, and that's how I began. And then, and then it became a process. I thought that this was really going to be a colonial history, as my previous one was, but this the the start date became very unsatisfactory. Like it became hard to imagine really beginning uh, beginning a work based on the idea of this is the day where the first European came. Um, when it took a very long time for Europeans to amass enough power in the region that they could influence pastoralists and past the pastoralist ways of living. And so then it became kind of an exercise in, in going back and to try to understand that where the origins of this process of impoverization began. And I ended up locating it in the 17th century. And then I followed that process as it, as it unfolds. And it helped me to create a kind of um, an a different kind of history of the region that decenters, I think appropriately decenters the colonial state, especially when, which I think is especially appropriate when talking about people who have a kind of um, uneasy relationships with state and state power anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like now to learn more about uh, the book and its chapters. Uh, the book consists of seven chapters organized chronologically and thematically. The first one, the introduction, becoming poor. What characterizes the African Red Sea literal as a region and its economy, which that based on pastoralism and its pastoralist communities? And how would you situate it in the broader African and the Indian Ocean context? That's a great question. Um, I think the it, it is a region that is defined by a kind of pattern of a historic pattern of human environment interaction. There's certain common environmental features across this relatively large geographic area that encourages certain types of patterns of human environment interaction. So the, the first most important pattern, the first most important feature, feature is that this is a arid or semi-arid region in which uh, rain-fed agriculture is not possible. But it is a region where also there are there are uh, multiple different seasons of different pastures. So there's often a lowland pasture season, season and an upland pasture season because this region is the region that is between the sea and either the Nile uh, in the case of Sudan or the sea and the Ethiopian plateau. And so pastoralists can move, they move up and down from the plateaus in chasing um, pastures. And then also the region, because of its proximity to the Ethiopian plateau, it also has access to these, um, it has, it is, it, it's not access to, it is um, bisected by these uh, torrential rivers that flow only when there is rain in the highlands. And this allows for a certain kind of um, safety and security in terms of pastoral, pastoralisms, pastoralists, because if pastures fail, Either the the lowland or, or uh, middle plateau pastures fail, um, then they're able to take their animals into these these torrential um, rivers, and also the torrential rivers allow the ability for some kinds of uh, seasonal cultivation to be to be to be engaged in, and as a result, across this region, you have a kind of multi. Um, multifaceted strategy that um, uses different kinds of resources that at different times of the year and in different ways that are not necessarily interrelated with each other that allow for the supporting of um, human civilization in a, re in a relatively arid region. People can, um, people raise animals, people engaged in some amount of cultivation, people did some amount of salt farming or salt mining, they were able to produce handicrafts. Um, they also engaged very importantly in the transport trade. There is a, a millennia long uh, trade in the Red Sea connecting, sorry, there's a millennia long trade in the Red Sea connecting um, the Red Sea to the Indian Ocean. This trade passes from port, from um, coastal ports, across caravan routes to inland markets, and these uh, pastoralists were involved in that. 
Mm-hmm. And how would you say the African context and the Indian Ocean context were shaping this region? So I think I think of this region as very much embedded within the Indian Ocean and the Indian Ocean world. And I think it's very important to think of this region within the Indian Ocean world. It, it actually creates the parameters of um, kind of the broader Red Sea space. Like, like I typically we're, we are we conventionally we assume this part of the world to be part of the Horn of Africa and to have a kind of terrestrial understanding of its relationships. Uh, internal relationships and then the relationships to neighboring populations. But actually, it's better to think of this, think of the connection as across the sea and to the Indian Ocean. Um, the, in, the trade with India historically was incredibly important for the region. It is part of what allowed in um, neighboring states for a kind of uh, social differentiation. It's the way like uh, elites in Sudan and Ethiopia might indicate themselves as elites as through their access to trade goods from India. But also um, international trade via the Indian Ocean was structurally important to every part of life, um, especially in the littoral area where people often ate food, rice, grains, sorghum that was exported from the Indian Ocean, from India or the Persian Gulf to the Red Sea. It it is part of what allowed people to um, focus on uh, pastoralism and only have to engage in cultivation as a kind of uh, supplementary activity because they were able to to purchase food regularly. There was a a continuous supply of food as a result of this trade. There also was um, wealth that was coming in. There was the ability to um, to purchase, uh, there was really the ability to earn money and purchase imported goods that long predates the introduction of steamers and steamships and kind of international, uh, fast moving maritime and air transport of the 19th and 20th century. And as a result, thinking of this region as just an African region or an African region in the sense of it's in Africa, cut off from anything that is not Africa is unproductive. And it's better to think of this region as a kind of part of a global world that predates um, the kind of modern transportation revolution. Mm-hmm. This is very uh, helpful. And, and in the previous podcast, uh, I've interviewed uh, Omar Ali on his book, Malik Ambar, and we touched on the Red Sea uh, slavery trade and uh, also Alexis Wick, uh, the Lost Space book on the Ottoman Red Sea. And now we are talking about uh, another history and dimension of the Red Sea. And this is very helpful. In the second chapter, Survival by Conversion from 1640 to 1840, the book charts the process of impoverishment from the ori- from its origins in the Little Ice uh, Age mega drought until the end of the Second World War. Uh, if you would uh, explain briefly uh, the Little Ice Age for the listeners who are not familiar with this uh, phenomena, and what were some of the environmental and cultural turning points in the history of the African Red Sea littoral from the early modern to the modern period? Sure. So the the Little Ice Age is a little bit of a kind of um, a controversial term. There is some debate about whether or not it existed, whether or not it was cold, when it began and when it ended. What is clear is that there, there, had, there was some kind of ir, um, climatological irregularity that began in the 17th century that presented itself differently in different part of, parts of the world. Uh, in Europe, this is um, very well studied. I think that um, there was a kind of extreme cold period that's why it's called the Little Ice Age. But in other regions, it presented itself very differently. In the, in the part of the world that I study in the African Red Sea littoral, it presented itself as a kind of unusual dry period. Uh, this unusual dry period lasted for about 200 years. It doesn't mean that it was only dry, that there was never rain, that it was never wet, there was never pastures. It just meant that the frequency in which droughts happened increased, that the amount of rain when it fell was much less, um, and that this cre- this 
what I show over the course of this chapter, and then I think, I hope, show the legacy over the course of the book, is that this really disrupted a long-standing balance in the region, that um, this, this, this complicated strategy using a bunch of different resources that are not intertwined with each other, that allowed for um, the maintenance of human civilization in this region, in this very harsh region, got disrupted as pastures moved away. So um, the, the more north in this region, so towards the, the Egyptian, um, towards the, the middle of eastern Sudan, became drier and drier. And as a result, there's a kind of uh, uh, a push of populations down from eastern Sudan um, towards the Eritrean border. There's, a, there's some wars, displacement, um, longstanding uh, ethnic groups disappear, get assimilated into other ones, new ones emerge. Um, but in it, beyond this is a kind of uh, a kind of two-part prob- uh, two-part problem that emerges. On the one hand, this is a this is a regional uh, a regional drought. Uh, this drought occurs also in the Ethiopian highlands, which means that there's not a lot of there's not the same amount of water flowing through the Nile. As a result, um, uh, this puts a lot of pressure on on states in in um, in Ethiopia and in Sudan who are not really able to perform a lot of the functions that they normally performed, including the redistribution of um, grain during periods of environmental stress and fam- uh, famines and droughts. And as a result, they fall apart. And so trade falls apart. So this is like one, one avenue of, um, of potential economic uh, profit for the pastoralists that I study. And then also at the same time, it becomes hard to, for them to maintain themselves on their own land. The pastures are not there. The torrential rivers don't um, necessarily have the water that, that should be in them to act as a drought pasture reserve. And people struggle, and they struggle for a very, very, very long time. I mean, they try throughout the region, not just the pastoralists, but the settled and settled areas. People try at first to make very conservative kinds of changes maybe pasture a little bit further south, maybe cultivate a little bit further up into the, high, into the highlands for settled populations in Ethiopia. And this, and this doesn't, you know, generation after generation after generation, they struggle to, to, to make something happen. And, and after over a century of, of trying to maintain a status quo that is becoming increasingly untenable, a whole cascade of transformations happens very suddenly at the turn of the 19th, from the 18th to the 19th century. In, in Sudan and in Ethiopia, you have a kind of disintegration of central power. Um, in the pastoral regions that I study, you have a sudden mass conversion to, um, to Islam. That these, these populations had for a long time had varying levels of interaction with with Muslim traders, with the broader Muslim world. They're at the edge of the Red Sea. They're near Mecca, Medina. Um, but nonetheless, they had maintained distance, a religious theological distance from, um, from Islam. And at the, end of the, at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, they convert, they convert and become adherents of various different kinds of Sufi brotherhoods that preach a very concrete, ideology of divine intercession in this world that the leaders of these brotherhoods are able to channel um to, to channel the forces this to channel spiritual forces in ways that could create pastures bring water bring rain um you have the and as a result this, uh, this i think is this i argue in the book is part of the appeal it's why this becomes a viable strategy for coping with an environment that is no longer copable uh, that people are no longer capable of coping with. Um, and the, the end result is you have the emergence at the end of the, at around 1820 of these kind of trans-ethnic religious groups uh, who have relatively wide uh, geographic spread. And they, their leaders are now competing with the longstanding uh, political elite, pastoralist political elites who have been, who, have been having trouble keeping their adherence to them 
because they're not able themselves, like the Ethiopian state and the Sudanese state, to perform some of their central functions, which is providing this kind of social safety net that um, during famines and droughts and periods of other other periods of economic and environmental stress, which is the there is a long-standing um, quid pro quo that um, undergrids hierarchical um, social arrangements in this region, which is during times of plenty, um, men and women are expected to provide more than their share to the to elites. And in, res- in return, during times of dearth, these elites are, re- are expected to provide back. And this was not possible at the state level in neighboring Sudan and Ethiopia, leading to the, to the dissolution of centralized Ethiopian and Sudanese states, um, as I think is better wealth, better studied. And amongst pastoralists, this led to this weakening of uh, political elite power and the emergence of this kind of counter power represented by Sufi brotherhoods and their leadership. I really enjoyed and appreciated uh, this chapter in which you sketched two centuries. Uh, And this is really admirable, trying to bring together environmental relationships and also cultural uh, structures uh, you know, becoming uh, increasingly intertwined during uh, this period. Um, and the third chapter, Divided and Conquered from 1840 to 1883, you zoom in to look at the winners and the losers in the aftermath of the mega drought uh, after the return of winter conditions in 1840. Uh, what are the major developments that you observed during these four decades? Sure. The 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 part of what I'm trying to do, what I try to do in this chapter, is to understand, uh, to contextualize, and to understand what happened the rise of Egypt as a as a Red Sea power in general, and then also very specifically as the colonial ruler over uh, these pa- these pastoralist groups. Um, unlike in though though Egypt is equally dependent on the same um, climatological uh, patterns as Sudan, neighboring Sudan and Ethiopia, um, in the sense that they're all dependent on rainfall patterns in the Ethiopian plateau, because that is what controls the Nile flood. Uh, Egypt emerges during the mega drought as actually stronger than it had been prior. The 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 rulers of Egypt um, over the course of the 18th century engage in a, in a process of um, improving and fixing irrigation, irrigation um, technologies, uh, irrigation systems that allows actually for an expansion of um, rain yields during this period, unlike what happens in Sudan and Ethiopia, where you have a sharp contraction. These, these excess grain yields that, are, that the state is able to command allows for um, the expansion of the state, uh, the expansion of the army, and this new Egyptian might is flexed um, at the beginning of the 20th century by at the beginning of the 19th century by Muhammad Ali, where he um, goes to um, uh, conquer. He conquers the Hejaz, the eastern eastern Mediterranean, uh, Sudan, and eventually this this area that I study. Um, so that's one part of what happened. So there's this rise of Egypt that is caused in part by um, an ability to do hydrological management at a time when everyone else is unable to do so. And then at the same time, within the within the way Egypt actually rules locally is in this for pastoralists, they, Egypt becomes very savvy. They under they the Egyptian rulers understand very quickly that there are competing interests. Uh, in this area, and that the best way to rule is to support one against the other. And these two interests are what what emerged at the end of the, the mega drought. It's these political elites versus these new religious elites, and the Egyptian rulers offer their new allies, uh, first the political elites, and then this also, there's some fluctuation in policy over the over the 40 or so years that they rule this region, first, the political elites, they offer them money and they offer them, uh, in some cases, arms, and they offer them um, control against the, these new theocratic 
leaders. They disrecognize the theocratic leaders as being representatives of the people. Um, and in so doing, they allow these political, and the, the deal, the quid pro quo that is there is that these political uh, leaders in, in terms, in, in exchange for the backing of the Egyptian colonial state, they now need to turn against their own population and, and turn over tax money uh, at very high rates, at exor- uh, kind of in an exploitative way to the Egyptian colonial state. And this, this is really the end of this uh, social safety net that I described earlier, where no longer do uh, political elites, and then eventually when some of the, tradition- when some of the new um, theological elites get brought into the state, that they don't need to have the buy-in of their of their their um, their population in order to maintain power, what they need is a relationship to an external source in order to do so, and the competition becomes for this: who can have access to this external source instead of the competition that was ha- emerging at the beginning of the nineteenth century, which is who would be able to command alliance of the of the local population, and as a result, this system of um, of uh, social safety net in times of environmental stress, this turning over of, of food, ensuring that people, everyone is provided with at least a basic minimum um, during periods of drought, locust plagues, and other causes of famine, this disappears. And as a result, you begin to have a kind of situation in which it actually becomes untenable to maintain yourself envir- in this harsh environment. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off indeed and this complements nicely the environmental hist- uh, history works has been done on uh, egypt during the reign of muhammad ali pasha uh, by historians like alan mikhail and you you continue the narrative for the southern part which you don't know much about during this period uh, you further uh, uh, trace uh, the narrative in the fourth chapter, and I don't know if you intentionally also titled it as War, Disease, Famine, Destruction, as the Four Nights of the Apocalypse in chapter four. Um, we learn about the, the violent civil war of the 1880s. Um, so what were the factors contributing uh, to this violent civil war, and why is it important to situate the war uh, as you argue, in the regional politics rather than the usual narrative of the Europeans scramble for Africa. Um, so this this gets to this interest. This chapter is like a particular interest to me. I think that um, Africanists, African historians, have a tendency to overassume the power of the colonial state. There's this idea that the second that there are Europeans that are there present, uh, that they are now the most powerful thing that is on the, the most powerful presence, that they are the locus of all power. And this, I think, is not true. It's a myth of European power, um, which I think is not evident. It, it becomes true, but it takes time for this to become true. And, in, and some other kinds of dynamic is happening during this period in which it takes time for Europeans to gain power. And so for me, this, chap- this chapter, I think, is very important because it is, it is the, the, the fulcrum point um, where suddenly there is the emer- there, Europeans come, they become interested. There's a little bit of interest in the 1860s, but really in the 1880s, there's a, suddenly a strong interest from British, French, and Italian uh, imperial planners in the Red Sea, especially in this part of the Red Sea. And you have them present, but the role that they end up taking on 
is not as the directors of the fights of conquest. What they end up being is competing external uh, sources of money and guns for these uh, indigenous elites who are who are themselves still jockeying for power as they have been since the this mass conversion at the beginning of the 19th century. There's just, suddenly there's new players and new sources of money, and this. This actually acts as a kind of accelerant. There's more ways in which uh, more people can um, can get the guns and the and the money and the food necessary to to field a, an armed force. Uh, in terms of in terms of what happens on the ground, what I show is also that the, the timeline of like saying that it's the presence of Europeans that is what is spurring all of, all of this doesn't exactly really line up. That in in the in the from the 1820s on, there's a kind of environmental recovery. The the, the better wetter conditions return to the region overall, and there's a resumption of trade. Uh, Egyptian power in Sudan allows for um, trade between Sudan and the Red Sea to increase. Uh, a process of centralization of power in Ethiopia begins again, allowing for that trade to increase. There's an overall trade in the Red Sea. Um, it's easier and uh, to maintain to main, maintain herds in the in the in, on pasture lands on the African Red Sea littoral, and yet the population themselves is not they're not getting all they're not getting the benefits that they imagine that they could, it, which I think is justifiable, and as a result they 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 chafe at the at the structures that are there and they've dis, and they and they. They have different interpretations. Different groups of people have different interpretations about who is to blame for the fact that there is an economic recovery, but at the same time that people are still struggling. And um, in in um, in central Sudan uh, begins the modest rebellion, which is something that I deal with in in my um, in my first book, which is a theologically driven. Uh, anti-colonial struggle against Egyptians and then against um, the British, and that leads to the emergence of a theocratic state in in, Sud in Central Sudan. This this rebellion there inspires other people to uh, elsewhere, including the pastoralists that I study, to themselves rebel. And it's a misunderstanding of the dynamics to say that they just become adherents of this theocratic movement in in central sudan this is this is not what happens it becomes it becomes part of the the things that are possible that you can do rebelling uh taking up arms against the the egyptian state against who you just who you think might be their um their allies um against other other groups that you think may have benefited against your own during the previous um 200 years they take them up inspired by the modest rebellion, some of them, but not all of them. Some of them uh, take up arms also uh, claiming um, so claiming support from European, the new European powers that are there, but they're not for European colonialism. Their expectation, it's very clear from how they're the leaders of these um, various armed militias act and what they, what they say they want uh, is a kind of independence. And um, the end result is uh, a tragedy. Their fighting becomes deadlier and deadlier as more and more um, modern arms and ammunitions are introduced into the region. And um, ultimately, in the midst of all of this, which is um, something I address, I think, maybe more in the next chapter, uh, rinderpest is introduced into the region. Rinderpest is a cattle disease that kills 90% of cattle in virgin populations. It was unknown to Africa prior to the end of the 19th century. Um, probably sometime around 1887, it was imported via the Eritrean port of Msawa. It, it passed along trade routes uh, to Ethiopia and then South Sudan, then spread throughout the region and then across the African continent reaching South Africa in 1896 and with this 90% of the cattle died um, and in Ethiopia in, in uh, the Red Sea area cattle are incredibly important uh, one they are a store of wealth it's what you do if you're it's where the money is you put the money in 
herds in cattle. Cattle uh, herds provide a kind of interest in the form of new, um, new animals through natural birth. Uh, it's also the it's also part of what solidifies uh, social relationships, the lending of cattle across across different segments of society, the paying of cattle and pride wealth, and also it's an important productive resource. It's what drives the irrigation water wheels in Sudan. It's what drives the plows in in the Ethiopian highlands. And then when they die, all the money is gone, and all of the agricultural labor in these two key important parts are gone and food cannot be grown. Um, there just isn't food, there isn't anything. People die in huge numbers. In some areas of the broader region, it's estimated that up to two thirds of the population die in the beginning of the 1890s. Mm -hmm. uh, and this grounding of uh, this, this part of Africa's history and its material conditions is really helpful to historicize conflict in this region as well, because often People assume this perennial violence going on without really grounding it in its historical trajectory. So this has been very helpful. Uh, you've mentioned that there was an environmental recovery uh, by the turn of the 19th century. Uh, and in chapter five, you call it an unequal recovery as the title from 1893 to 1913. Uh, I'm curious, what were the main differences in the practices, policies, and attitudes towards the environment between the previous uh, Turco-Egyptian administration and the subsequent British, French, Italian, and Ethiopian empires. Sure. Um, I mean, I think I think one thing. Just to before I answer that question, I just want to kind of push a little bit more about um, like the idea that there that there is a recovery happening at this exact time period when. Europeans are entering into the scene. So they begin, the Euro Europeans arrive in 1885 just as the civil war is kind of escalating. They're part of the escalation. And then the, and then the famine, the Rinderpest um, happens and the famine happens. It's a tragedy. And then, and then people try to rebuild. And this is where co like colonial history, this kind of European colonial history begins. Um, and this is this is often overlooked in other histories of this region, or in general in history. Af African history has this very strong periodization that begins the colonial period at exactly when Europeans arrive, and as a result, often this is missed that the, that there was something, and then there was something else uh, is missed. Um, and so, for the for the people that are living through this, for the pastoralists that I, in particular, that I study, they are trying to figure out a new way. To live, they they are there are not enough people. They do not have cattle. Um, they cannot maintain themselves as they had previously, previous to the civil war, and they need to find some something, something to do. Um, and there is a plan that seems to emerge, a kind of grassroots plan that emerges around um, a shift towards sheep, uh, sheep and goats. They survive. Sheep, sheep and goats were not affected by this rinderpest pig. They survive. There seems to be some kind of sheep, new sheep sharing um, arrangements that are happening. Communities being emerging around this, um, and this is happening kind of a little bit outside of the the, the frame of view of Europeans. They don't really understand what is happening. What they, what the Europeans who want to establish themselves as powers in the region, what they what they want to see is uh, tribes organized by chief, by chiefs, around chiefs, that chiefs, these chiefs with different various kinds of local titles, but chiefs, that they are the locus of power, they are the locus of control, and it's important to win them over. In part, this is a kind of like uh, historical imagination of what Africa is like. This is what Europeans imagine Africa should be. And in part, it is also what they think Egypt, Egypt had done there, like, the French, the British, and the Italians, they don't, they recognize that this region is not terra nullis. They think of it as having been uh, an Egyptian colony and that Egypt had a set of protocols and they, and they follow them, uh, at least initially. And this forms the initial template. So they, again, 
They look for chiefs. They they give them salaries. They expect them to turn over to turn over taxes. They're not interested in whether or not these chiefs can can um, win the support of their local uh, of their of their um, subaltern population. They think of themselves as being the support. The state is the support for the chiefs, and the chief's job is to act as this agent of the chiefs and turn over taxes. Often, it's the main thing that they want and keep the population population quiet. And in some ways, this continues and, and, and exacerbates something that is happening under the Egyptians, which is this, this erosion of a kind of moral economy. So uh, as, I, as I said earlier, in Egypt, this, the, this moral economy in which elite, local elites are expected to provide, especially in periods of environmental and economic stress for those that are suffering, the Egyptian colonial state erodes that, and when Europeans come in, they they uh, it, it becomes impossible to to reconstruct that. And this kind of alternate vision of a more of a non-hierarchical society organized around um, the ownership of of sheep and goats it cannot come to fruition. And then on top of this, um, Europe, the European powers, to various extents. Differently, I mean, France uh, France organizes itself differently in the region. Also, Ethiopia, because I deal with some areas that end up within Ethiopian territory, organizes itself slightly differently in the region. But um, the European imperial powers have this idea that um, the natural resources of the colony are, by default, the states. They do not. They do not belong by default to the community. That they are vested within the state, even if there are community level rights. They are rights that are vested in the state that the state manages for the community. And you see a kind of willingness to progressively take over various of these various resources that had been important to pastoralist groups. In order to maintain themselves, right? Pastors don't need just pastures because they don't just own uh, own uh, own herds. They need access to rivers. They need, um, in some cases, access to uh, salt deposits. Various various other um, things. They need access to trade routes, um, and these all become vested within the state. Within the state, and as a result, one by one, as the state, as the colonial state emerges slowly, progressively, over decades, these resources are taken away and it becomes harder and harder for pastoralists to maintain themselves. Mm -hmm. And and despite strategies and and, and changes, uh, you argue in chapter six that the cost of living becomes unaffordable between 1913 and 1945. Um, So what do you mean by structural poverty uh, and, and how did it take hold among the African Red Sea literal pastoralists during the interwar period? Sure. So I think one way one way to think about this is um, how is how is it that we define poverty? I think that that we have there's a con- kind of conventional idea that poverty is a kind of absolute state. It's it's that you are um, you do, you do not have enough. Absolutely. Uh, but thinking of it this way as it's just like a, a, a non-fluctuating, a non-fluctuating state misunderstands actually the kind of context of poverty, that actually we live in a world that is that is full of change. And we need to be able, in order to be not poor, you need to be not poor in every one of the normal set of uh, conditions that are possible. So with the example of the African Red Sea littoral. It is normal in this region for there to be droughts, even setting aside the the mega drought, this 200 year period where um, droughts became more uh, more frequent. What would normally happen in this region, also in the Red Sea in general, is a drought one out of every three years with maybe some good rains in between. They're they're allowed to be a kind of. it was it was it was very it was easy to overcome the drought because people understood that it was it would be coming that it was there and they needed to plan for it. This is they 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 needed to be able to be um, fine in not just the good periods 
not just the okay periods, but also in the bad periods that they can expect. And this is part of why they had built this elaborate uh, moral economy and this um, this uh, strategy of using different kinds of resources in different ways that are independent from each other. And then what happens over the core over this long this long story um, that by the time we get to after the First World War, that is not possible. What what they what what is what happens is that under under okay conditions, under very good conditions, pastoralists were able to continue to survive in their in their pastures, in their normal, in their um, in the way in which they wanted to continue to survive. But then you would have what otherwise would be a normal one year drought, for example, and and that would be it. People would people would suddenly starve. It would it would cause a famine. Which is which is not a normal response to a normal condition. It should not be that something that can regularly happen should cause uh, suffering on the level of a famine. Something that should regularly happen and historically regularly did happen should be survivable because that's how you can build a civilization somewhere. And this 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 does not happen there. It becomes impossible. You have this repeatedly in different parts of the region at different times over the over the period after the First World War, that what otherwise would be a normal famine would lead to catastrophe. And here, what what the response becomes a forced move away. I mean, it's it's not forced in the sense that the state doesn't make them happen, make them make this choice, but they do not really have a choice. They can these pastoralists can either stay in their pastures and try and likely uh, suffer from either chronic malnutrition or from famine or they can give up partially or completely and move to cities. And you have beginning in this, in this interwar period and then accelerating really after the Second World War, you have a, a, a migration to cities and the emergence of the kind of uh, pastor, pastoralists that have no herds. This kind of pastoralist in name only where the dream, the idea, the memory, the self-imagination is as pastoralists who, whose life is organized around the the owning of herds, but the reality is that people are living in um, uh, improvised communities, improvised shelters on the edges of cities. They're they are poor and they have no hope of ever being able to amass the amount of money to be able to invest in in animals and be able to move back into the onto the past, into pastures and onto the land. And that's what structural mm-hmm. property is there. That they're they're stuck. They are stuck being poor in the city, and they are stuck, unable to get. Um, enough resources to be able to get out of that. Yes, uh, yes. you, you close the book by a conclusion that you call being poor. Uh, so since the Second World War, uh, what role did pastoralism play in the regional economy of the African Russia literal? And how did it factor for the different examined communities and classes during the periods of drought and famine? I mean, so what you have after this, uh, after the Second World War is really this kind of um, exactly what I laid what I laid out before. It's it's it, you have an abandonment of pastoralism as an economic strategy, as a kind of idea, as an ideal, as a imagined community organization. It maintains itself, but you don't. And this is something also. But you don't have people engaged in this activity um, in the same way. I mean, there still are some people that there's some percentage that is able to maintain themselves in herds, but you have large groups who are now poor and living on the outskirts of cities who are from these groups who imagine themselves as part of these groups as pastoralists who do not have this and this 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 chapter this conclusion in the book it's i bring it back to um kind of what my what the introduction of the book is which is another framing of this overall story Another kind my, that frames what I'm talking about as a kind of counter narrative to a lot of prevailing scholarship. There is a lot of um, there is a lot of scholarship, especially from the 1970s on, examining this urbanization in Africa, uh, also including in this region. Why are people moving to the countryside? And they come up with lists of push and pull factors that um, are pushing people off of the lands and pulling people to cities. It, 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 for some time, it was a vogue amongst uh, various different um, scholars to try to figure out their own list, to say, no, this 
pull factor was wrong and this push factor was wrong. Um, but actually what I try to show and what I try to show over the entirety of the book and I try to really bring out in the conclusion is that there is an impediment that is blocking that, that understanding in those, in those studies from, from the 1970s on in that they look only at the recent past to, dis, to understand what is happening, that they look only to after the, first, after the Second World War, during the Second World War, from the First World War on, from the beginning of the colonial period on, without actually really understanding um, that there is a longer history to this process of impoverishment that has led to this move to cities, and that this is a much longer one, and that actually the, the way in which pastoralists were living in the beginning of the 20th century, after the First World War, was or after the first world war was already in a state of crisis the beginning of the 20th century was a state of crisis and any any imagined relief of current um structural poverty in this region that tries to bring people back to a state that they were like at the beginning of the 20th century would just bring them back to crisis and that um it has been a very, very, very long, long drawn out process that has brought people to decide to fund, to, to be put into position to fundamentally transform the way in which they live in, and move to a city. That, it, that is not something that people want, that people would wanted to do at the time as evidence from a lot of um, interviews that were conducted in the 1970s and later. Um, and it's, a, it's something that we as scholars should understand the we need to really pay attention to the magnitude of that kind of change and understand that it comes from something of equal magnitude. And that is what I tried to do in this book is really show that it took 300 years to get to the point where uh, pastoralists were unable to continue to be pastoralists and therefore had to move to cities. Indeed. Uh, well, Stephen, uh this interview can do justice to, to this book, which is really informative and, and written in a very succinct and informative and clear way. And I really recommend it as an excellent introduction uh, to, to this part of the world. Um, at the end, we'd like to know uh, what uh, the authors are working on. I'm not expecting you to be working during this crazy year, but if there are any projects you would like to uh, talk about or you hope to work on. Uh, so I'm working on um, kind of, uh, I have three ongoing projects that are the general direction of my research at the moment and probably going forward. One is I have an interest in the history of money. Um, um, I'm particularly interested in the spread of the kind of our contemporary modern currency uh, system that links the entire world together. And I have done already published some stuff and I'm working on some other stuff that looks at the, the spread of colonial currencies in the um, Red Sea region and links it also to the setting in of structural poverty that, that, people, that people within this region turn to new money forms because they didn't have a choice and they were no longer able to maintain older currency systems in the 20th century. I'm working also on a kind of general history of the Red Sea. And um, I have done some new work inspired by our current uh, global crisis, looking at the history of um, disease in the region. I recently published a report for the Rift Valley Institute that looks at um, the history of syphilis, smallpox, and cholera um, as a way of trying to figure out what to expect from coronavirus. Um, I published that this summer. And I think that that's the beginning of more research that tries to examine the history of disease in the region as a new way of understanding the history of human civilization. All of these sound very interesting. And, and I know you've published chapters uh, in, in a series on the Indian Ocean world published by Palgraf uh, Macmillan, which I recommend uh, looking at. Uh, well, thank you for this uh, time, and I hope that the listeners will go and pick up the, the book and your other book and learn more about uh, the African Red Sea Uh And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode in which we explored the, the impoverishment of the African Red Sea Literal 
between 1642 to 1945, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2018. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.